our cancer journey. Hey, OCJ podcast friends. It is Bruce. And on today's show, we have Joe Bullock returning for part two of his interview with our program. In Joe's amazing story, he went from being a caregiver to a cancer survivor to a leading patient support advocate. Check out this clip from the show. My wife said, haven't you rescheduled a colonoscopy? Uh, and of course I was like, no. You know, she looked at me like stupid. Yeah, I know. There's that. no conversation with your loved one when it starts of, <laughs> haven't you done this? What's like, and, and honestly, being a nurse, she was like looking at me like with no sympathy, like, you know what you need to do. Why aren't you doing it? Well, she's right. So I went, right. She's right. <laughs> I was expecting you know, the pat on the back or the, the hug or the love. And that wasn't happening. You got a boot in the butt, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. The Our Cancer Journey podcast is a place for those impacted by cancer, their caregivers, and their loved ones. Together, we explore ways that we can optimize our lives through the experiences of diagnosis and treatments and beyond into the future of survivorship. And now your host, Bruce Watkins. Greetings, everyone. This is Bruce Watkins, your host for the Our Cancer Journey podcast. This is the place where together we'll explore ways to help you feel better, live happier, expand your self-empowerment, and enhance your life experience. Welcome to the show today. I'm so glad you joined us because in today's episode, we're going to play part two of the interview we did with Joe Bullock that started in season one of this podcast. My conversation with Joe was so rich with storytelling. He's had an amazing journey through his life, not just through cancer, Joe was an average guy who had a wonderful relationship with his wife, had a couple of kids, and then became a caregiver to a father that, speaking honestly, he was kind of estranged from his father. And that strained relationship and how Joe moved through that caregiving experience is really informative and it's not all that uncommon. So some of the points of that episode, episode number nine with Joe Bullock from the first season, may be very important for you to check out. So please listen to that episode. And that's important because this episode picks up right where episode nine left off. We'll complete the conversation about Joe and his father and how the dynamic between the two really taught him about how to be a good caregiver and how that information and how that knowledge helped him when he himself became a cancer patient and his wife became his caregiver. There are fantastic takeaways in this story, so much so that I wanted to isolate this part of the interview in one singular episode. And in this part two of the interview, you're going to probably pick up two big takeaways. The first is, if you approach a cancer experience, whether you're a caregiver or a cancer patient, if you approach it with an open heart, you're going to find the power and the motivation to move through a lot of things where people sometimes get mired, you know, stuck in a pothole. Joe did that, and he's telling us a few stories about how he reached out, he overcame things out of love, wanting to connect, and be there for other people, even when he was a cancer patient. These are great takeaways for us all. They're hard to remember, but hopefully this episode will be a little reminder that will help to open a door for you to do just that. Now, the second thing is this. When you listen to this episode, you're going to hear Joe and I laugh a lot. <laughs> I mean, we are making jokes, which is really counterintuitive because we're talking about some really serious and scary stuff. It's that ability to, in the midst of tragedy and chaos, 
to see the irony and the ridiculousness of some situations that lightens our load. A mindset that can do that can take away some stress, can take away some panic and worry and major fears, and in the end, can help our bodies relax and sometimes help our bodies heal and improve the quality of our possible healthcare outcomes. Science is now showing that humor is super beneficial too. So take this seriously. Take a moment to really reflect and let yourself laugh. Let yourself go, this is crazy. Because you're still in there and your observer, the real you, can see all of these things and those totality of experiences are what we call our lives. Let's roll the tape here with Joe. I'll pop in at the end and I've got a special announcement about a following episode we're going to do with not only Joe, but another special guest too. So here we go. Enjoy the show. I'll be back soon. Okay, so Joe, you've gone through this odyssey with your father. It's almost Shakespearean. The right. son, the father, you know, the coming right, together. Right, yeah. you know, we, we definitely had that relationship. And it's a great, and I'm not going to say it's a great story because it ended well, but it's the human story. Right. Right? Right. And you transcended yourself, and not only did you do something wonderful for your father, but eventually you're carrying that thing forward, and it's informed the rest of your life, and we're going to get to that. But you mentioned there was other challenges, too, and I know that you mentioned your mom had passed. Yes. That happened before you got diagnosed with cancer? Yes. So um, after my dad passed away, in fact, my dad passed away on my mom's birthday in July 20th. So Wow. So then, in fact, my colon cancer surgery was on July 20th. Okay, so let's back up. So you're going through your dad's passing, you're doing caregiving, you're dealing with all this stuff, you're challenging <laughs> your own feelings and stuff, you're talking to the chaplain, you're talking to the doctors, right, right. and you were going through diagnosis of cancer at that time? Right. Well, not diagnosis. I mean, I knew I, shortly after my dad passed, I started showing my, I had some blood in my stool, I had some fatigue, I had some abdominal cramping. When I Googled, it did talk about colon cancer, but it also talked about hemorrhoids, talked about stress. All these things could cause what was happening in my body. And I thought, okay, maybe it's because I'm just grieving for my dad. It's just a stress of dealing with his estate. I figured that's what was causing all this. It, it can't be cancer because I don't have any cancer in my family. Yeah, you're just stressed, man. You're just stressed. I was like, it's, got, it's just stress. It's just stress. So, so I assumed that. And I had gotten better about getting physicals. I just made a decision a few years prior that on my birthday, I would schedule my annual physical for that year. Give myself a gift, a health gift. <laughs> so, happy birthday. <laughs> um, happy birthday. You get, a, you get to have your rectum checked. Anyway. <laughs> you know? so, get to have your DRE and your PSA. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, God. So, so um, so right, so I had that that scheduled, my, you know, my, to have it done. So I told my doctor about my symptoms, and he said, "Well, you are turning, you're fifty. I just turned fifty. And he said, "Let's schedule your colonoscopy." So we scheduled it for two days before Thanksgiving. This is a 2017. So my wife's like, "Yeah, just we'll do it on a Wednesday. We'll just push Thanksgiving into Friday or Saturday. That way, you'll you'll get the colonoscopy and you'll have a day to kind of recover, and you'll be ready to eat food again on Black Friday." That was the, that was the plan. Okay. That Monday night, uh, my mom started having chest pains, and we ended up rushing her to the hospital. 
she seemed fine once we got there and got her settled really weren't expecting anything we thought she had a little bit of fluid on her heart and they got they got the fluid off her heart the next morning i went to visit her and we had a great conversation talking about christmas coming up and buying gifts for the grandkids and i gave her a kiss and i left and about two hours later, I got a call that <clears throat> she uh, <clears throat> died of a massive heart attack, which was totally unexpected. That afternoon, I called the GI clinic and said, I have to cancel my colonoscopy. My mom just died. <laughs> you know, it's just like, sorry, I'll have to reschedule at some point. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you, you, you've had this major life event. Right, you know, my right, God. Right. I mean, with the shock of my mom's death, I don't even know how I even remember to even call the GI clinic to cancel the appointment. Like, I don't know where that came from, but I did call and just cancel and say, I'll just have to reschedule at, a, at another point. God, you know, Joe, I just have to acknowledge you go through this one thing, this odyssey with your father. Mm-hmm. It took a long time a lot of life addressing, reflection, strength, perseverance. And then you go all the way over to the other side of the pendulum and your mom dies completely unexpectedly. I mean, right, right. The, the, I, uh, well, and, 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 and later we would find out why I needed therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with cancer. <laughs> well, you know, here we are laughing about it. But yeah, you came in and said, I've got a few things in the bag here. So um, how, many, how many sessions do you have? Uh, yeah, right. When I sat down at a therapist, I, I was like, how far do you want to go back? You know, but, um, <laughs> how, much, how much time do you have? Where do I sleep? <laughs> right. Where do I, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God, Joe. So. So here you are, you're, you've got blood in your stool, you're doing all this stuff, your mother has died unexpectedly, mm-hmm. obviously you're the person that's going to be handling her afterlife mm-hmm. responsibilities too. Right. What happened next? Well, the symptoms weren't like I was seeing blood in my stool every day. I would go like a couple of months and nothing would happen, so I would go back to that, well, it's just hemorrhoids and it's just stress. And it wasn't until probably March of 2018 that I saw increasing blood in the water. So I, I knew something wasn't right. My wife said, haven't you rescheduled a colonoscopy? Uh, and of course, I said, no. You know, she looked at me like stupid. Why I know. There's that? no conversation with your loved one when it starts <laughs> of, haven't you done this? And, <laughs> like, and her... And, and, and honestly, being a nurse, she was like looking at me like with no sympathy, like, you know what you need to do. Why aren't you doing it? Well, she's right. So I, I right. She's right. <laughs> and, and so I, I'll admit she was totally right at the moment. You know, I, I was expecting, you know, the pat on the back or the, the hug or the love. And that wasn't happening. You got a boot in the butt, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So I went back and I, I recalled, recalled the GI office and rescheduled the colonoscopy, but also going back that I was a pre-case teacher at the time. So conveniently, I felt like, well, I'll wait till mid-May when I stop teaching for the summer and then I'll have the colonoscopy. Well, of course, because your teaching responsibilities are so much more important than your life. (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Like, right, exactly. And my wife was like, she found that out later. Again, she was like, stupid. What were you doing? Kind of thing. I like you, Joe, but I like your wife too. um, I'm just going to go on record. Right. Right. She didn't realize why I put it off so long. So the day I went in for the colonoscopy, I opted to do, you can either do two ways. You can either go on a full sedation or you could do what they call a twilight. And um, I had some struggle. I had a surgery in my twenties and I remember I had struggled coming out of sedation that day. Yeah. That's tough for some people, right? Some people. And so the idea of going under sedation again, because what happened in my twenties, 
I, I requested a twilight. I remember I laid down and I went to sleep right as I got started. I was on my side and I woke up during the colonoscopy, which is, you know, you're not, you're not feeling anything happening. You just, you're just alert. And I looked over and the way I was turned, the monitor was in front of me. And I talked about Googling earlier you know, yeah. symptoms and I had seen tons of images. And I remember I, I woke up and I looked up at this monitor and I remember looking at, and I don't know if the doctor noticed what I was doing or whatever. He was too busy trying to figure out what was going on my butt. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, you're, hey, keep focused, doc. You know, let's not start looking around the room. <laughs> so <laughs> You're driving, keep your hands on the wheel. <laughs> so I, I'm looking up at the monitor and I'm like, is that me? And the doctor looks over and he goes, okay, you're, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I'm seeing this meatball of a tumor hanging off my colon. So I, I knew from the images that this is not good. Um, and he kind of told me, you know, I want you to breathe. I want you to take a breath. You know, we did remove two polyps. We're, we got up through the rest of your colon. Everything looks good. We've tagged and measured that. He did say the term tumor at that point. And when we get into the waiting room, we're going to discuss everything. But I want you to know I've got you. You're going to be okay. We're going to get you through this. And I think the funniest thing is I fell back to sleep after that happened. <laughs> I just sort of, I think it just took all of it off of me at that point, And I just kind of fell back to sleep. And then they had to wake me up again. Well, you mentioned one time when we were talking that this doctor's proclamation, their confidence, their calmness, mm -hmm. and them just yeah. looking at you saying, hey, don't you worry. We've got this. Mm -hmm. That really did something for you. It gave you some strength, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did. It reassured me of my diagnosis. He made me feel comfortable. He didn't say right off you had cancer. I've, I've heard patients automatically be told, well, you've got cancer, you know, and that, that wasn't his term to me. His term was, you know, I've got you, we've got this, we're going to get you through it. And we're going to talk some more in a minute. By the time he got me, by the time he came to the waiting room, my GI doctor had already spoken to my oncologist. He'd already spoken to my surgeon. They already built a team at Duke Medical Center. They were very direct. The plan was laid out. You know, we had a strategy. So I felt very confident as a patient at that point. Okay, so here you are. Your dad's gone. Your mom's gone. You just found out you got a meatball mm -hmm. in your butt, you know, and, you're, yeah. and, and now you're coming out, but you're feeling okay. How was it right after you were diagnosed? I know you talked to me that there was a period of time where you were kind of on autopilot because you're in an unusual situation because you have somebody that you live with that's a medical professional. Yes. And you said that it was just kind of like showing up to your wedding. Right. So my wife is an RN at Duke Medical Center, which is right there where my cancer center is. And once they heard I had cancer, she and her boss had already figured out, you know, who my oncologist was, who my surgeon was going to be. So everybody pretty much was telling me what to do. I just had to show up, what time to be there, what I should wear, what I need to prepare for. So everything was kind of laid out, sort of like the wedding. You know, it was just, I said, did you just be here in front of the preacher at this time and say, I did. Were you as glassy-eyed as most guys at a wedding? <laughs> right. I was just as glassy-eyed as most. I, I, I was told what song to walk in on, and I knew that it was Pachelbel's Canon, and I better walk in on Pachelbel's Canon. You know? <laughs> so, you know, so, so that's pretty much what it was, was cancer. Just be here for that time. Be, be ready to go. I was a good patient. But what happened with me was probably around the second chemo, it all started to cave in. The idea of reoccurrence, dealing with 
the pain of losing two parents in six months before being diagnosed, wondering what's going to happen to my family. What about my job? So all of these things were just like this huge weight. And at that chemo appointment, my oncologist walks in the room and he looks at me and goes, this isn't you. Like I've known you for five months and through all of this, you've always been so positive, happy, even in the midst of what you were going through. And the person I'm seeing right now is totally different. He wanted to call in a therapist at that point. and, And I agreed. Because they, they do have a specific cancer therapist at the, at the cancer center that works with the patients. So she came in the room. We sat down for a minute. And she's like, is it okay if we bring your wife in? We sat down with my wife. And at this point, I'm thinking we're okay. Like, I'm not really seeing what everybody's seeing. Well, let me just stop you. <laughs> yeah. So you know now that you're a couple months in, right? You said you're in your second round of chemo now. Yeah. And up to this point, you've been the glassy-eyed groom. And, yeah. and you're just moving through it. But now the thoughts are coming. Right, right. And now the emotions are starting to well up and you're right. starting to kind of, the, the foundation's starting to crumble, but right. you're still doing the dude thing. Right, right. Now, the, uh, I got this. Everything's fine. You know, wife looks we're fine, good. We're good. And even because I had been caregiver for my mom and dad, I was like, I've been a caregiver. I get this. My wife's a nurse. Like that was going through my head. Like, I'm fine. Why are y'all bothering? Yeah, but this uh, <laughs> elephant in the room is over here, gnawing <laughs> yeah, away. Right, it's over there. Okay, so now you go in and you sit down with your wife and you talk to the therapist. So what happened? Right, right. So the therapist starts asking questions and I'm like, oh, we're doing good. I'm in treatment. I'm here for chemo. We're working the treatment program. We're doing fine. And then my wife is really quiet during all this. And so the therapist turns to my wife and goes, I want to hear from your wife. What does she think? And I'm thinking she's going to say, oh, we're fine. As my wife isn't one to really open up emotionally, I think because she's very much a nurse, she's in a clinical space when it comes to a diagnosis and dealing with a patient. And I was a patient. I was her husband, but I was also a patient. And finally, she, she said to the therapist, I need you to take him away. He needs to talk to you. I, I can't be his only sounding board. I'm dealing with this treatment. I'm making sure that the A, B, and C is happening, but I can't do all of it. And I love him, but he needs more than what he's getting from me. Hold on for a second, Joe. I want to ask you a question. Was this the first time that you heard this from your wife, that she was in a state where she was overwhelmed and she needed support as a caregiver? I had never heard her express that before. Um, so my assumption was we were okay when we really weren't okay. Emotionally, she had felt turmoil. I didn't realize there was turmoil because of the cancer. Also, my wife let me know it's not his fault. I know it's not his fault. I know it's the treatment. I know it's the chemotherapy. I know it's the cancer, but he needs to talk to somebody else other than me. I can't be his only sounding board at this moment. And and at the moment I did feel a little bit thrown under the bus. This is the male pride, you know? But the light bulb did go off that I need to help her now. Joe, what you just said is super important. That is super important because I hear this all the time. We're so wrapped up in trying to save our own life Mm -hmm. that we're going down a road, making choices, sometimes doing habitual things we always done, but our caregivers need support too. So tell me more about that. What was that like when you realized that she needed support? It hit me all of a sudden that I needed to put, and I've said this before, I needed to put the care back in caregiver. As a patient, I think we need to do that. And that's what, at that moment, that's what she needed from me. 
was to go talk to this therapist. And I needed to be the man to do that, like the man up and just go in there and spend this time. Even though, even a part of me was still kind of reluctant in it. Luckily, the therapist I was working with understood that. We just took it at our own pace. She's like, you can tell me everything. You can tell me nothing. Whatever you want to do here, it's your choice. That made me feel like more secure with the therapist. And then we went on for about, I probably did about three months worth of sessions with her. I had joined a local support group that she was running at that point, And I continue to go to that support group today, in fact. You know, that is a fantastic story. I mean, one part of it, I don't know, it kind of unravels me a little bit because, you know, in the new standards of care with survivorship and integrative medicine, Mm -hmm. they're starting to bring psychologists and psychiatrists in on day one, Mm -hmm. sitting and saying, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm here for. I'm going to be seeing you periodically to check in. Mm -hmm. But thank God for your oncologist, for them to go out and do something beyond their normal medical shtick and say, dude, you look different. Yes. You need to talk to somebody. We're going to do it right now. Yes. That is, in the absence of integrative medicine and really full adoption of survivorship, that's an admirable thing of that doctor to do. Yeah. Probably really helped your entire recovery as well as your relationship, right? Yeah. Yeah, because he was very, uh, his name is Dr. Blobe at Duke Medical Center, Cancer Center. And, you know, he just came in that day and he was like, dude, I told you you're going to be okay. What are you doing? It was basically what he was saying to me. Leveling with you. You know, he was like, trust, <laughs> I told you to trust me. Why aren't you trusting me? And so that that was where it all kind of came through. And he was like, let's bring in a therapist. I think you need this. Trust me in this. And so I think that was extremely important. Well, and think how many people, Joe, you know, and you, you deal in men's groups, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute. Think how many people are against talking to other people. They think shrinks are just angry women or beard scratching right, right. dudes. You know, ask, tell me about your mother. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> that right. Kind of stuff. And <laughs> yeah. it takes a doctor sometimes to kick somebody. And if the guy would have been resistant to it, he wouldn't have got all that help you got. Mm-hmm. So, Right, right. And you know, the other thing too, Joe, and I want you to talk a little bit more about this, the burden that caregivers take on themselves you can't fully describe it in words, especially if they're a loved one and a caregiver. Right, right. That's a heavy burden. And we as patients sometimes, taking something off of them to help them, it helps our care, but it helps them as a human right. being too. You know, it gives us a purpose. Mm-hmm. And just talking to somebody in your situation helped her out tremendously. Yes. So yes. did she come back and let you know that that was beneficial? And did she comment that the therapy was helping you? She de- Yeah, she could definitely tell I was much happier. I was more active around the house. I wasn't as sad. She could tell that those support group meetings were extremely important, and she made sure it was on our calendar and that we set aside time for me to go because our family, we were busy. Our kids were involved in different programs. We were, you know, like any other family, taking our kids here and there and there and there. And she was making sure that I got that a lot of time for that therapy group. That was important for not only myself, but for our unit as a family, for dad to be solid in his diagnosis and to be emotionally there was extremely important. Well, you know, Joe, we're going to be doing a whole series of episodes on mindset and the power of mindset. So this is a great tee up for that because you are an example of some person that took some steps to alter or improve or refocus their mindset. And it wound up having positive impacts. And it did clearly have some positive outcome on your treatment, because how are you doing today? 
I'm doing great. I'm what's called no evidence of disease. Some people would call that remission. I finished chemotherapy in 2019 from that set of scans showed that there was no cancer. And, but it took a while. Um, when you get that gift as a cancer patient and the doctor tells you no evidence of disease, there's no more cancer in your body, everyone around you wants to celebrate. They want to throw a big party. And we did. Uh, we took the kids out to this burger place we like. We went out for ice cream. We did all the, the celebrating that they would expect in a celebration. But in my mind, it was like, man, what have I just been through? Where did I go from here? And I remember my therapist, I had been going to support group. I remember she came up to me and she said, I know you just got this amazing NED that's wonderful and definitely want to celebrate it, but you need to call me. And I wasn't seeing her on a regular basis at that point. She's like, I need you to call me in about two months. You're going to hit a wall. And she was right. I, I definitely hit a wall. As I approached that second set of scans, what we call scanxiety, all the worry crept back in. So I ended up going back into therapy for a little bit just to be able to have that that sounding board again that I needed. We could do an entire show about the the three month cliff that we all go through. You know, right, I know we could, yeah, definitely. I just I thought of something. I've never heard one person in a cancer support group or online or any of the people I met at you know places <laughs> ever say to me, yeah. when I concluded my treatment, right. I had no thoughts in my mind that this thing could ever come back. Right, right. Right. I've never heard anybody say that, no matter how gone it is. Right. And and what's terrible, you know, and I don't don't mean to be a downer here, but what's really terrible mm-hmm. is I know people that recovered from one cancer and then two, three, five years later, they had a different cancer. It wasn't just reoccurrence. They had other things going on. Mm-hmm. So that worry is not crazy. Well, right. Well, and the funny thing is the same summer I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer, I was actually diagnosed with skin cancer on my face. What? I didn't even know that. Yeah. So I, ha- I have a, a scar right below my eye. It was very close to my eye. They were very concerned. And they removed a couple of spots and they biopsied them and they did show signs of cancer in both spots. And I remember the, the doctor there was like, well, we might want you to do chemo. But now, <laughs> but now I'm realizing you're going to be doing chemo, so we'll let the colon cancer chemo take care of that. <laughs> it was just like, it was like, like they're trying to debate, well, we could do this, but really you're going to be getting this anyway. We don't want to over-chemo you. Yeah, you're on, the, you're on the two-for-one plan, Joe. <laughs> right, yeah. So, so, yeah. So, I was you know, going into my cancer surgery. I, I was wrapped up in my face because of the uh surgery I had on my face. (laughs) So yeah, and I I was healing from that. But it was my, um, it was my oncologist that saw the spots on my face. He was like, you need to get that looked at. And sure enough, uh, I went to a dermatologist and it ended up being cancer on my face. (laughs) Well, I grew up in the sun on the beach. Yes. Yeah, I did too. I did too. On the farm. You know, we've had stuff just appear out of nowhere Mm -hmm. and later in life. And now I realize I got to have a dermatologist. Somebody's got to look at me periodically because the Mm -hmm. thing could be in the back of my neck. I wouldn't even know, you know? Right. Uh, And when it goes down, it goes down hard sometimes. So, you know, that's, that's great that your oncologist spotted that. Yeah. There was a time, and I think it was your therapist that said this. They asked you a question of who's your caregiver. Mm-hmm. And you said, my wife. And then they said, hold on. Oh, yeah. Let's think about this. Would you would you tell that story? Because I think that was really an mm-hmm. insightful story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was writing on the paper and she did these little three bubbles. And she said, okay, so I want you to think about 
who your caregivers are. I know you're, you, you know, you talk about your wife being your caregiver, but I think there's more people there in your life. And so I had a coworker who became my point person at work who would basically be my voice at work. So I wouldn't have to tell everybody what was going on over and over and over again. Oh God. Yeah. Whoa. You know, she kind of, <laughs> she kind of took that away from me. And she, she said something pretty phenomenal one day to me. Cause I would always apologize. Like I couldn't do this or that, or I'd miss the staff meeting cause I had treatment or for whatever reason, I couldn't do everything I was doing. And I would always apologize. And one day she just looked at me and she said, would you stop apologizing for your cancer? This is not your fault. None of this is your fault. I don't want to hear you I'm going to like slap you the next time I hear you apologize for your cancer. Some, sometimes the best treatment. And so it really just dawned on me. Like I didn't realize I was doing it. And she's like, you don't need to be apologizing for any of this. So she was really at work, had become sort of like that person that kind of took all that from me. And then um, I had uh, my cousin's husband, who's my neighbor, I hadn't even thought about taking care of my yard during treatment. Like this is during the summer. I'm going through treatment. He just drove by one day. He waved at me and said, I've got your yard. Don't worry about it. And I don't think we ever really talked about my cancer. I think he may have asked, are you okay? And I would say yes, but we never went into detail about it. But he, for the next eight months, mowed my lawn and took care of the yard for about eight months um, after that. Isn't that wild how people help in their own ways sometimes, right? And that's, I think that's like the magic of a caregiver. It's just seeing the need. And that's what he did. He just saw the need. And then, of course, my sister, my younger sister, who is a nurse, became another caregiver who helped me at times when my wife couldn't. This would be a great point since you've moved through your diagnosis, your treatments, you had some struggles, you overcame them, you took the advice of people that were wise, or sometimes were having to kick you in the butt for you to be wise. Right, right, right. And then you come through this. And this isn't all that long ago. I mean, this is like 2000, 2018, right? And then you come through this and you've recovered and you realized I'm in a good place. Yes. And you persevered through a lot of personal things with the death of your parents. Right. Overcoming your own self-limiting stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you felt this need to do more. But it seemed like it was quiet. It doesn't seem like it was intentional. You just started to walk down that path. I want to kind of talk about how you transitioned from the average dude, Joe, and then came out the other end of this transformational thing going like, who else can I help out there? I want want to hear about that. Shortly after I was diagnosed, it was sort of that period where I was going through with a therapist a couple of months after going into chemo. I started searching online. I ran into a podcast, um, Lee Silverstein's We Have Cancer. Oh, yeah, Lee. Lee's good. Yes, he's good. Lee's awesome. By the way, listeners, I'm going to put a link to Lee's podcast in the show if you, in case you want to hear it. Go, go ahead, Joe. Awesome. There was a gentleman named Charles Griffin Jr. who he had on his podcast that day who was living with stage four colorectal cancer. He was an African-American football player. I think he played for Baltimore. I think he had just retired because of his cancer. And he had talked about just men being more open to talk about their cancer, to support other men going through cancer. He was part of an advocacy group called colontown.org, who I'm also an empowered patient leader for. But you weren't at the time you heard the podcast. I wasn't at the time, no. But, But Charles was. Charles was at the time. So I reached out to Charles after the podcast and I just let him know, hey, I enjoyed your podcast. 
and I let him know that I am a stage three colorectal cancer patient at the time and just asked him how his life was going. And I knew he had kids and I was like, how are your kids doing? And we talked about our kids and just kind of had that. It was through messenger. So it was just through text messages. I don't think we ever really talked on the phone. He said, basically said to me, because you were stage three, you're going to do great. Just follow the plan. And I didn't know the extent of his at that time, but he's like, your cancer is totally curable. It looks like you're just going to go through chemo and you're going to be fine. And I encourage you, once you're on the other side of it, to really stand up and be there for other men that are going through this process. Sadly, um, <clears throat> he passed away in, um, mm-hmm. sorry, he passed away in, in August of 2019. And after he passed away, I remembered our conversation. And I told him in the conversation that when I get to the point, I want, I want to use your example. I want to, I want to do what you're doing. And he was like, in your time, when you're ready, I think that would be awesome. And I remembered that. So I started kind of getting my story out there a little bit through Colon Town. But what I really wanted to do was to help men, because I had kind of a background, because I had mentioned earlier about a scare with testicular cancer. My dad obviously was diagnosed with prostate cancer. You know, I had skin cancer and a colon cancer diagnosis that I wanted something that was going to support men going through any form of cancer, because we know that the emotional trauma is the same. So you have this example of Charles Griffin Jr., and he really made an impact on you, but you had all this going on in your life. Mm -hmm. This is what was at the core of motivating you to get out and reach out. And you just said something about help men. Mm -hmm. When you started going out and getting involved with these groups, what did you notice? Was there not a lot of guys involved? There wasn't. I mean, most of the cancer groups, a majority of them are like 80% women, 20% men. So when I would go into a group and maybe even ask a question, I would get like 50 responses from women and maybe three men. (laughs) they're smarter i mean they're smarter exactly i have my wife you know for example (laughs) but and and that you know their responses were great and they were helpful but i think at the moment i needed another guy to tell me i was going to be okay well because you were dealing with some issues you were dealing with issues as a father right you know your survivorship for your family right so i mean and the women said some brilliant things to you right and i know you they did they did You speak very highly of women that have inspired you, that have been wonderful advocates. Yes. But when when you needed to hear something from a perspective of your own to solve some of the things that you were going through, you just felt connecting with another guy could be helpful. Right, right. And and to go back to women, I mean, it was so funny that when I got invited to my support group, I initially forgot about it. (laughs) And it wasn't until a fellow cancer patient that knew me from Duke, Aaron Duffy Wood, sent me a Facebook message and she goes, are you coming to support group tonight? And I messaged back, yes. And then my wife asked me and I was like, well, I just told a member of the group I'd be there. So I better man up and be responsible and be there for, <laughs> for that person. So, yeah, so women have been a major force in my recovery. So definitely. But I needed to hear just I need to hear it from a guy. I need to hear his perspective and his life. And so instead of me asking these questions in the groups and getting like these, all these responses from women, I just started friend requesting those three men. I would just send them like private messages. like, I'm going through this today. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? 
And some some of the men were receptive. Some are like, who's this dude contacting me on <laughs> Messenger? <laughs> well, I can imagine. You know, kind of thing. But, you know, I got I, I got some different reactions. But but a couple, you know, I really did get some really good responses from and messaged with a few of them over, over the months. And I think at one point between 2018, August 2018 and December of 2019, I had friend requested, it was probably about 400 men who were going through cancer. Wow. And this is, this was new for you, right? I mean, you weren't a social media guy, right? Right, right. I had, I had like 35 friends on Facebook when I started in 2018. Sounds typical. (laughs) Like nothing. And now I have, I think I'm over 3000. Didn't didn't you tell me that the reason why you got on Facebook, because you wanted to see what your daughter was up to and you were just kind of keeping an eye. Right. And then, (laughs) right. And then when she found out that we were on Facebook, she left Facebook. She was like, she's like, no. (laughs) And some people say teenagers aren't all that experienced. Right. 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 Exactly. She went on to another app or something. It was, yeah, it was funny. Well, there you go, folks. We are going to end part two of our interview with Joe Bullock right here. I hope you really enjoyed it. I just think Joe is such a wonderful person. He's really wholehearted. Probably one of the things I like about it, and maybe you did too, is that when advocates tell stories sometimes, they tell their story over and over and over again. And when we listen to them, sometimes like motivational speakers, you get the sense like they've told the story a thousand times and you're the thousandth and first person to hear it. Well, in this case, in listening to Joe, he's so open. He's having as much fun telling the story as we are listening to it. And I certainly had a great time listening to it. I hope you did too. Now, you just heard Joe telling us about what motivated him to get into advocacy which is while he was going through cancer, he saw many other guys were struggling with the very same thing that he was. He was having trouble connecting. He was having trouble reaching out for support. He was doing the stuff lots of guys do. And that doesn't generally bode well for our psychological or our physiological health. And Joe wanted to do something about that. So Joe jumped into advocacy with both feet. He began to ramp up his mission, and we were just starting to talk about the launch of his current advocacy missions. And that's why I stopped the podcast there, because I really like what Joe is doing, and I'd like to feature it in a future podcast where I can highlight it for you. In that future podcast, not, this is a tiny spoiler alert, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but in that future podcast, Joe's going to return, and he's going to be joined by Trevor Maxwell. Trevor founded an entire concept called Man Up to Cancer. It's kind of complicated. There's a lot to it. But he does a podcast that's really personal, really touching. And he also built a space, but he needed some help to expand this thing. So he tapped Joe Bullock. Together, these guys have built this podcast, a website, a large Facebook group, And it's doing really good work for a lot of people. I discovered this group back in 2020 while I was traveling. And I really liked the fact that it was inclusive. It had a whole bunch of different kinds of guys in it. And it's not a medical show. It's about support and connection, which I think we all know is super important. So I hope you listen to that episode when it comes out. It'll be coming out in a few months. 
And we'll have some special announcements on that show, too, that are going to be exciting. Thank you, Joe, for joining us on the program again. We always love having you. Trevor, it's going to be fantastic to have you on. I look forward to giving your podcast a shout out. And I want to thank all of you listeners, too. Thank you for supporting the mission of the Our Cancer Journey podcast. We believe that we all have a life and we can do something to improve the quality of our individual lives every day. So thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing the program. Thanks for supporting us. And we will be back very soon with some fantastic episodes. Talk to you soon. This episode of the Our Cancer Journey podcast is sponsored and produced by Fairlead Media. All rights reserved.